Hi, welcome to Head Start, the podcast for race directors and the business of putting on races. When you want to know what's happening and trending in the endurance events industry by the numbers, where do you turn to? Well, for me and many people I know, the definitive source of event data for the industry is, and has been for some time, Run Signup's annual race trends report. The report leverages Run Signup's extensive registration data from tens of thousands of events to point to trends in overall event participation, event pricing, participant demographics, registration trends, and a myriad of other things. The most recent edition of the report was out just a couple of weeks ago, and despite a weak start to 2022, the data does seem to suggest that the post-pandemic industry recovery is picking up pace, with some races recovering better than others and noticeable entry fee increases across the board on all race distances and disciplines. With me today to discuss the numbers, the trends and their implications for individual events and the industry as a whole, I'm delighted to have Run Signup's own Bob Bickle and Johanna Good. Bob and Johanna will be helping me make sense of some of the more interesting data points in the report and offer their own takes on what the numbers might be telling us for where the industry could be heading in 2023 and beyond. Unfortunately, there's just too much data in the report to be able to cover everything in today's episode, but you can download the full 2022 race trend report for yourself for free at info.runsignup.com. That's info.runsignup.com. And I would strongly encourage you to do that. As I said, there's a lot more in the report than what we'll have time to cover today. Okay, now it's time to dive into the numbers and hear how the industry has been doing from Johanna Good and Bob Pickle. Johanna, Bob, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Panos. Hey, Panos. So how are you guys? How are things in Morristown? Life is good. Pandemic seems to have uh, waned considerably and uh, uh, race numbers seem to be uh, picking back up. Just did the stats from uh, January and races that happened in 2022 and 2023, it, it, we continue to see uh, recovery there. So fingers crossed things are going to be kind of back to 2019 numbers for most races, hopefully this year. Wow. Yeah. Fingers crossed indeed. We're going to get into a lot of those numbers uh, from the report in a sec. It's good to know that things seem to stay on track for January. Johanna, are you in Morristown as well? I'm close. I'm across the river in Philadelphia. So occasionally I'm in Morristown. Okay, cool. So you're not one of those uh, four people that Bob was telling me are in the office in Morristown. No, I, I, I come in about once a month. That's great that you guys make it work sort of like on a, on a remote basis. It's, it's enviable. Not many companies can do that. But that once a month, those are my favorite days. Yes, <laughs> I can I, I, I can imagine. Now, you guys are based in Morristown, but you have been uh, traveling recently. I was really uh, quite curious to hear how this new thing you guys get going, the uh, roadshow that replaced your winter symposium is doing. Is that one of your things, Johanna, again? are you? Does the burden of all that fall on your, on your shoulders? <laughs> yes and no. So, you know, I am the kind of, person managing all the pieces of it. But what's nice about it is we have, like you said, a pretty remote company and people kind of all over. And so we're able to kind of work with the people who are local, have them help out with, you know, places that would work and some of the connections in the neighborhood. So it actually brings it a little bit, a little bit into everyone's realm. And what was the thinking there? Like, I think, I mean, I, I read the press releases and everything. I think it sort of makes sense. 
but how does how does this roadshow differ from someone visiting the symposium say like is it less it's obviously shorter in time but like is it more education more community i see lots of drinks and canapes going around so what was what was the idea there uh, i think we just wanted to be able to reach more people symposiums are great and they have because they have more time they have a lot of depth to them uh, but they require someone, even even if we keep the cost of the actual symposium very low, they require our customers to travel from wherever they are to us, um, take several days out of their time, pay for hotels. Um, and that's just a big burden on race organizations that are already kind of stressed from the last couple of years. Um, in addition, it, you know, there's just people who are never going to be able to do that. And so by going out to different areas, we're able to get um, kind of a broader view of our customers and meet people that we otherwise wouldn't. Uh, and hopefully kind of bring them together too. So is it is it an event just for customers or can like prospective run sign up curious people come and say hi? Well, I hope so. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've had we've had people who are not customers at every location so far um, as well. Yeah. So from a business perspective, our cost because we we underwrote the symposium, the cost of the symposium. So we're doing 11 cities and the cost to us is about half of what putting on the winter symposium would have been. And uh, so it's cost effective for us. It's it's better for the environment because there's fewer people traveling and on planes and things like that. We do get to take advantage of our remote team. So like we're going to be out in Seattle because we have an employee in Seattle. We're going to be in Kansas City because we happen to have two employees in Kansas City. We're going to be in Rochester, New York, because we happen to have an employee in Rochester, New York. We're taking advantage of our geographic diversity some. But the summer symposium is still happening, is it? No. We're we're going to continue roadshows. We're going to touch about twice the number of people that we were able to touch with a symposium. The feedback that we've gotten from uh, a number of customers, actually, is that they like this format better. And what what's kind of a side benefit for people that are getting together is that it provides a forum for local people that are into endurance events to get together and to talk to each other. <laughs> so a lot of the a lot of the benefit might be catching up on what's what's happening with run sign up and and coming away with a few pearls of wisdom that could improve their endurance event. But a, just as big a part is just actually getting together with with people that are kind of in the same boat as each other. So run sign up is the excuse. Run sign up is just an excuse. And on the prospect side, I think that every event we've actually wound up having um, somebody decide that they are going to use run sign up that justifies the cost of the event too. Not to be too much of a business guy here, but we do have to keep the lights on. No, I know. Although, you know, with all of these things, it's very difficult to put a price tag on awareness and how your customers feel about being there and stuff. I mean, you know, it's difficult to say, you know, this is the hard return on this thing. And to me, this kind of format, I think, makes a lot of sense. People traveling, the environment and all that is always a consideration. But the local community and the fact that some events, as you say, just cannot travel to the big conferences, I think is the biggest thing. And we'll get into some of the numbers of run signups customers also in a sec. And you guys have like 35, 40% of the market. So you have lots of all kinds of events, but I feel like the platform is particularly friendly to smaller events or, you know, like at least as friendly to small events as large events. So lots of those customers, 
you know, I guess they just couldn't afford to pay, you know, two, three thousand dollars or whatever to come to a symposium, which again, you know, was probably well worth it in terms of content and education and also the networking. But uh, yeah, this this kind of like cozy regional thing probably makes more sense, I think. Yeah, we are reaching some smaller um, customers, but it's kind of interesting that the couple that I've been to, um, uh, I went to Houston and Boston, we've gotten some really large customers to come there as well. Um, customers that have many events, uh, timers that might have a couple hundred events that they work with. But it, it, it is interesting because we do get some smaller events um, like in uh, Boston, there was um, a small 400-person race that came up from um, Connecticut, and they told us how meaningful it was. And you know, it, it was for a nonprofit that had some sadness behind it. But the founders of the event, you know, had lost somebody in their family. But it was just really heartwarming to hear that type of a story and ha- how our technology helped them. And and it was it was a nice mix between you know somebody that had a couple hundred events and somebody that that had a 400 person race that you know raised fifty thousand dollars that's awesome so right now the calendar from what I saw online it stops back in Morstown does it or are there more events announced because you said you want to be doing this sort of like all year round yeah that's where we're at for currently currently settled um, options I think we expect to continue to find some more locations throughout the rest of the year maybe not at quite the same uh, pace we've done for this two-month kind of trial period. Um, but I think we expect to continue to be out on the road a little bit more throughout the year. Yeah, the goal is three to six per quarter. Okay, great. Is there like a short URL that people can hit up and see where upcoming uh, roadshow events may be? So if you go to runsignup.com now, there's a link under knowledge base for webinars and events. They'll all be listed under there. Okay, so runsignup.com and top right, you get like, uh, I remember that there's like knowledge and then you're saying there's all the webinars are up there webinars and events and it'll they'll all be listed under there um they can filter by live events if they just want to see the upcoming roaches and congratulations on the new site by the way but that said not a bad idea to have a run signup.com forward slash roadshow or something is it we can figure that out awesome so today we're going to be going through um one of my favorite pieces of research your race trends report i've been following this i think should be like my fifth year, and it's grown a lot. The stats in it have been getting richer and richer. We did a full episode on this uh, last year, and I think it's a great tradition that we're sort of getting together every February to just review what happened in the year before, uh, trends and stuff like that. I would like one of you guys, or both of you guys, to just describe to our listeners what the Race Trends Report is, where the data that goes in it come from, and also what the motivation from your point of view has been in putting this stuff out. I guess I'll take the first shot at that. Um, so we started this a number of years ago because you, kind of one of our founding principles is that we're a very open type of a company. If we share our data, it just makes, it just makes everybody kind of better. And we had gotten to the critical mass where we had enough data that it was statistically um, you know, relevant. <laughs> so. We started putting this together, what, Johanna, maybe six or seven years ago? I think 16 was the first year. Yeah, so pretty long ago. And what's happened is since that time, we continue to aggregate market share. So there's more and more data. 
So this comes from literally tens of thousands of races and millions of people signing up. And so when we look across that and we we run a bunch of reports that take a long time to run because they're very tough on the database and it's it's a huge database and we try to we try to just get that get that data out and that's a combination of our software development team that you know does the reporting and uh, Lewis Jones and Johanna Good who um, actually collate it and analyze it and put thought and meaning behind all of it um, and we just think that it's it's great for for our customers to to see this. It also just helps raise the visibility of the company so that people know who we are and that we're here to help and trying to trying to make the industry better and to grow. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely I guess as you say in lieu of I guess like a more centralized data collating kind of agency that the industry lacks, it is the closest thing we have, I guess to uh, race stats and event stats and participation stats for the US. So it's a, it's a great service that I know people use quite a lot. Now, you mentioned at the top of the, of the episode that 2022, 2023 even, is looking quite strong. What's the bird's eye view on 2022 compared also to the year before? Better. So we saw about 16% improvement from 2021 to 2022. Um, that was pretty much across the board. There's some weird quirks with ultra reporting, but uh, virtually every distance showed that it improved pretty considerably compared to 2021. We also saw that get a little bit better throughout the year. That's 2019 numbers. And compared to 2019, which I guess was like the last normal year kind of uh, before the pandemic, how, how are we doing? How are we doing? How did we do in 2022? Are we catching up? Better, but not as not as good as we optimistically hoped we would be. I think early in the year, um, it took I think a bit of time throughout the year to see some improvement. Uh, on average, for the year, still down about ten percent across the board. Um, that did get better through the end of the year, with the exception of September, which we think was kind of impacted by a big hurricane on the East Coast that hit a lot of, of races. Um, but August through November essentially was four to six percent down. So we did see a little bit of, of growth at the towards the end of the year. Am I sensing also from Bob's comment on on January twenty three um, that things are accelerating in a good way? Like because I remember we came into twenty twenty two and everyone was thinking, "Oh, this is gonna be you know like the recovery year. It's gonna be amazing." And early in the year, it didn't it didn't seem to be pointing in the right direction. And then suddenly, last few months of twenty twenty two, everyone's been a lot more buoyant and and bullish about. You know, like also like empirical stuff, how it feels in the ground on the ground with with stuff like that. I would be cautious <laughs> about becoming over enthusiastic. I think we are feeling very positive if we are starting to get back to 2019 numbers. Like, I think the industry will be a lot better off if the thousand person race that happened in 2019 returns to be about a thousand people again in 2023. In 2022, in the beginning of the year, it was more like a 750 or 800 person race. Towards the end of the year, it was more like a 950 person race. If we can get it back up to a thousand, I think that is 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 going to be quite quite healthy for everybody. I think it's going to be tough for it to get to 1100. So don't paint us too enthusiastic. <laughs> okay, it also um, pays in this 
particular regard, because you also mentioned the thousand person event as the yardstick here, to look a little bit at the two extreme of larger and smaller events. Because from what I gathered on the report, they they fared quite quite um, differently over 2022. Some of the larger events, interestingly enough, I would have thought the opposite actually, were underperforming some of the smaller events. Yeah. So I think what we saw, races over 5,000, kind of what you alluded to, were down about 18.5%. Whereas if you get down to races under 500, kind of smallest races, um, they were actually up about 3%. Uh, there, the in between there, you see kind of an even breakdown as it it gets it gets worse the larger the race gets. And I mean, I think there's a lot of hypotheses on that. Um, travel was unpredictable and hard. Large races tend to rely on stuff like that more. They tend to be traditions that people have planned for a long time in advance, and that may not have happened over the last couple of years. Th- those events need to draw so many people, and they need to be they need to draw people from outside their regional area. Um, I think that kind of participation was really hard and unpredictable this year. Whereas your small community races down the street from you, you may be more likely to show back up for that. I think that there's kind of an energy factor as well. So if you think about it, a small race is typically put on by a core set of volunteers, people that have passion around a particular project or endeavor or something like that, like that 400 person race I was mentioning in Boston. Larger events to become large, they require a lot of um, marketing and uh, as well as energy, just the just plain energy. I think the pandemic caused financial constraints that kind of uh, decreased marketing budgets. And I also feel like it also impacted the personnel that were part of larger organizations. Maybe some people had to be laid off, and the people that were kind of coming back might not have had kind of the same amount of energy uh, as they had. Well, it's interesting because I would have thought that, you know, going out of the pandemic, everyone would be going through their bucket list. And basically, you know, it would be all like Boston, New York, Chicago, you know, like all of the all of the big events. But some of those some of those points actually make sense. I wonder whether and we're going to touch on uh, this uh, a little bit later in the episode in, in greater detail. But I wonder whether cost may have been a consideration for some of those larger events as well, because, you know, the, the entry fees are substantially higher for some of those events. And, you know, disposable income is under pressure uh, because of inflation and other stuff. So do you guys think maybe cost may have been like an aggravating factor dragging down the performance of those larger events? Personally, I don't think so much that being an impact. You know, you look at a lot of different surveys and they talk about, you know, the average compensation or household income of people that are participating in endurance events and how it's higher than most and things like that. And and personal spending has kind of continued being pretty hot in the US, um, you know, all during the pandemic because of all the all the incentive programs that have happened. I'm not so sure of that. I think it's the other side. I think it's the cost side. So if you put on a big race, all your costs have risen and it may take away the quote unquote energy um, like uh, marketing programs. So you may not have as much money to spend on marketing programs and marketing programs that races have traditionally re- relied upon, like, you know, Facebook ads is um, decreasingly productive, <laughs> let's say. Uh, the cost of it is expensive and they don't have the budget to spend on it that they once did. Um, and 
So I, I think it's more on the cost side for races than it is on like the individual participants deciding not to sign up. Um, with the, the, the cost side on the, on the, on the participant side, I think the cost factor would be on the travel. So people did not want to travel because airline costs were too expensive. Um, hotel rooms were expensive. It was a pain to get through airports, et cetera. So um, it was really the travel component, not necessarily the cost of the $100 marathon that prohibited people from attending. Yeah, interesting point. And just to, just to summarize that, we said events of 5,000 participants and more were down almost 20%. And then the smaller events, which is 500 participants or less, were actually up 3%. So that's quite a spread there between the two. And we should also, um, another number that I notice in the report that surprises me every single year is that more than 95% of events do have fewer participants than 500 people. I talk to people uh, in the industry on, on the vendor side and on the race director side, and I think very few people in the industry have an understanding of this very wide fragmentation of, <laughs> of our industry and, and like, you know, how many small events there are out there. Like I speak to some vendors and they're like, yeah, 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 but you know, like, you know, they'll tell me, oh, you know, I'm going after the, you know, like 2,000 participant minimum races or 5,000 participants. I'm like, okay, these are, according to your report, actually, only 1.6% of races have more than 1,000 people and only 0.1% have more than 5,000. I think that's going to make a lot of race directors with like few hundred participant events um, very happy to know that they're in the in in the huge majority <laughs> they're in the majority the other here's the other interesting stat and this is from uh you know pre-pandemic is that if you accumulate the top 100 races all the people that participated in those it's only six percent of people that participate in races so um you know like we have somewhere around 22 23 24 the top 100 um that use our platform um but they actually represent a very small percentage of our revenue and the amount of money that we can utilize to pay software developers to keep making it better. Um, it's actually this this long tail of hundred you know five hundred person events um, that really contribute to us being a successful business because we're we've developed the technology to be very efficient and self serve so that you know, we can handle that volume of customers and still run a, a, a decent business. Do we actually know, I wonder, because that wasn't in the report, what the actual median size for races is or it was for 2022? I think the average with such a large skew may not be particularly relevant, but like the median would be quite helpful for people. That would be sort of like the midpoint between all races, let's say you know you put them on a on a scale or something like the race that sits in the middle in terms of participants, do we know where that is roughly? No, we could theoretically do that very manually, but from the data that we pull automatically, we do not. Okay, I mean that's more like a, an academic. Yeah, I you know like the average number is somewhere in the what three fifty to four hundred people range. Um, so you accumulate all the people above that, of all the races above that, and all the races below that, and and that's your average size. Um, the number of races 
um, would be, if you take the number of race median, it would be lower than that, right? Um, just because you have, you know, you have to have 10 races at 100 to make a large race at 10,000. So it's amazingly small. And that's the great thing about this, this marketplace. You know, it's one of the reasons why I started this company is like, there are so many people with passion that care about what they're doing and the, and the event that they're putting on. And if we can build a technology platform that can make that hundred person event have the same set of features New York City Marathon has in terms of runner tracking and text notification and ease of sign up and free photos and all of that, then then we've created something that's useful and 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 has an impact. Not us directly, but like the customers that use our technology have impact on people's health and wellness as well as raising money and stuff. And that's what that's what kind of turns us on. Yeah, indeed. And indeed. And, and and as you say, it's like the platform is the same whether like you're a huge event or a small event. They all they all get the same the same uh, starting point to work on. Now, one of the things that is uh, also part of the stats that you track is churn. I'm not sure whether people would sort of like understand the term as such, but it's basically how many races don't make it from one year to the next. I th- I guess it's a more of a kind of like tech kind of uh, term there, but it's basically what percentage of races happened in the previous year and didn't happen this year? And of course, again, because we've been through a lot and not all years have been the same recently, you're providing two numbers for churn. One is 2021 to 2022, so what you've historically been using for churn. And then you're also tracking churn from 2019 to 2022. So it's actually, there's, it's all 2019 to 2022. But what it looks at is there's two sets of that. One of them is happened in 2021, happened in 2019 and 2021. We don't actually know in that if that set happened in 2020, uh, but happened in 2019 and 2021 and then didn't happen in 2022 or happened in 2019 and didn't happen in 21 or 22. Okay. And the number of events that haven't happened at all between 2019, well, that haven't happened since 2019 um, you're saying is around 14%. Correct. So is that safe to say by now, given as we're heading into 2023 and the last event for those races had been 2019, that sort of these events, that percentage of events, 14% is gone, never, you know, it's never coming back? Much of them. I think there's a small percentage that may still um, come back, but the, the majority of those are probably races that have decided that they are done. It's actually a pretty good number. So we started tracking this in 2017 and in 2019 churn was around five or six percent so that means that in the month of you know march of 2018 you know about five percent or six percent of those races did not happen in march of 2019 and so um and we only track races that are greater than 500 participants. So we don't track races that are less than that. But the the thing about that stat is, is that we treat the 500 person race the same as a, as a 1500 person race. And what, what, what you look at when you look at the raw data itself, it's typically the 500 person or 700 person race that's not happening again, because it just didn't get to critical mass to 
pay for itself. It was if it was commercially oriented or some race director decided to age out and nobody else took over the event or or something like that. And so if you look at that 2019 to 2022 number, I view it as relatively healthy. It, it's kind of in that 5%, you know, 14 divided by three years. Um, it's kind of in that range. And so I feel like a lot of the events have come back now that, you know, would have come back during that time, which is good news. <laughs> Indeed. And and from the events that happened in 2019 and then in 2021 again, but not 2022, that's back to sort of around the historical average of around 6%, right? Yeah, that's that's kind of right on track with what we saw pre-pandemic. So I think we may have lost slightly more than normal in 2020 and 2021, but we've kind of settled back into a regular level of churn. Just to uh, clarify, if people look at the data, there's two, there's kind of natural churn, like the race doesn't exist anymore. And then their competitor churn. And, and we typically will lose like 1% or something like that of, of races to competitors. So we, we factor that in as well and kind of take, so treat them kind of separately because those races still exist. So the 6% say, does it include the competitor churn? No, that's, that's excluding competitor churn. Okay. 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 Cool. Understood. Now, one thing that doesn't seem to have uh, gone back to 2019 is um, repeat participation, right? So that is lagging uh, significantly, uh, it seems, the 2019 numbers. And I mean, the obvious question is, why do we have any, any theories around that? But before we get into that, I want to just remind ourselves why repeat participation is so important that it sort of merits a separate treatment in your report and why people want to want to focus and be looking at repeat participation more closely than other types of participation. I think the big thing is that race's biggest marketing opportunity is through participants who get their friends to come with them the next year, that kind of word of mouth um, from people who've done the event. And so if, if those people aren't excited and aren't coming back, then they also aren't bringing anyone new. And you're having to continue to spend marketing money and time and effort to go find new people. Um, whereas if you can get those the same people to come back again, they're much more likely to actually bring someone else with them and do some marketing for you. So they're just better margin participants, I guess, because you know they they know you, they've they've been with your event. You don't need to market to them, kind of thing, and they're they're just coming back for another year. Yeah, it's it's money saved if they can come back, you know, from an email instead of needing you to to advertise to them. And how is repeat participation trending from 2019 up until last year? So 2019, we saw about 18, 19% of participation participants coming back to the same event in the following year. Um, I will say that I think that's a little bit deceptively low in that it looks at the same event distance versus the same event distance. So if I did the 10K one year and the 5K last year, the next year, um, it may lose me. Uh, however, it is still you know, noticeable. Um, we've gone from about 18, 19% down to about 14% in 2022. Um, that is the lowest we've seen excluding 2021 and 2020. Uh, but those numbers were really bad. We saw about 10% in 2020. So I think we are starting to get back up. I think we'd like to see that and continue to move back towards um, pre-pandemic numbers. Now, this is this is interesting to me because to me, repeat participation, I would think that it probably comes from 
more from like local participants, meaning, you know, I do my local race, then I show up year on year. And we said earlier that, you know, there was a bit of a headwind against people traveling to other events, hence why smaller events perform better. And I would somehow have expected that repeat participation would reflect that, that it would be stronger to basically reflect the fact that local people are showing up for local races. But that doesn't seem to be the case. I do think, I mean, a lot of that is just, um, there was so much chaos in the types of events offered over the last couple of years. People had traditions that they'd always gone to this event and then it was virtual and then it wasn't. And they don't know what's going on and they forgot to sign up because they've changed their whole routine. And so like, I think I think some of that is just, a, a reflection of events being really inconsistent over the last couple of years is the is the race in March or October now, you know, like, you know, needing to kind of get things back settled um, before you can really rebuild full traditions like that. Yeah, there was a lot of um, shifting months around. Uh, that's also in that report. I think, you know, yeah, your, your, your monthly numbers are all over the place because, you know, like so many events move back and forth during the pandemic. So it's, it's difficult to compare those. I agree. Now, Virtual events um, are um, still uh, still make up 10.5% um, of all events on the platform, which I find interesting. Not quite the peak that we had, obviously, during the pandemic, but we don't seem to be trending downwards to the pre-pandemic 1%. So these kinds of events seem to have some staying power. Uh, they, they seem to, you know, they'll, they'll probably remain part of the industry. What I wonder about these events is, that 10.5 that you include in the report, are we talking about sort of a virtual 10K that a that an in-person marathon may offer, like that virtual option? Or are we talking about, you know, entirely virtual, standalone virtual races type? I think that there is some continuity of the in-person having a virtual subset, but I think that that's kind of on the decline and you know, probably in the neighborhood of a few percentage points. Like if your race has a thousand people, you'll get another 50 maybe uh, who sign up virtually um, for the race. Uh, you know, obviously, depending on the energy the race puts into it. Um, we happen to have a couple of large um, companies that put on virtual races on our platform. And so some of their numbers will bias it somewhat. So. Gordy's Pumpkin Run has um, about five or 10 in-person events, and they also have a virtual, but they put a great deal of energy into the virtual. And so they'll get, you know, tens of thousands of people that sign up for uh, the virtual uh, version of that event still. And we have other ones like, like there's this interesting company that partners and, and offers marketing services, uh, Run365, and they've got like a, a Snoopy's um you know, virtual event and and things like that. So they partner with with uh, with they partner with Snoopy. <laughs> yeah, I think there's kind of two buckets. There's the the race that offers it as an option, and I think Bob's numbers are probably about right that they might pick up an extra two percent of registrants, um, just kind of on the margins, a little option for people who can't come. Or there's races that are virtual only, who are very good marketers, um, have really fun, creative ideas, and can make really, you know, can really do a very well done virtual event. There's not a lot. I think we're, what we're losing is the in-between of like people just doing, you know, a random one-off virtual or like really investing in their virtual with their in-person. Now, one of the um, many interesting stats in the report, at least it was surprising to me, was the makeup 
of uh, the people participating in virtual races, the 10.5% of events that are that are still uh, v- uh, virtual. And I was really surprised to see that the predominance of people participating in virtual events were over 50 years old. Now, when I see virtual races, you know, pop up on in, in on Facebook or something, I see strong branding, colorful stuff, got to own it kind of metals, you know, like huge bling, that kind of thing. And I wouldn't have thought that. So I had I had sort of like associated in my mind that virtual races might probably be more for younger people. But while only 24% of um, over 50s participated in in-person events, 34% of virtual races were made up of over 50. So is that is that as surprising to you as it has been for me or... I think that's actually what we saw throughout the pandemic. Um, young people hated virtual and did not want to do it. I think we said, you know, there's just a lot of largely, yeah, 40 to 50 plus women seem to be the market for a lot of the events. Speaking for older people, we like color too. Okay, Panos. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> now that you mention it, now that you're sort of, um, you know, the ambassador for, for older runners, uh, at least in this podcast. Do you see what the motivation is for an over 50-year-old to enter a virtual race? Like, I just wonder why. It cannot be the blink, I I hope, right? I, I can't see like a 55 or 60-year-old going around with like a huge medal or something. I think it could partly be the bling. Um, it's the feeling of achievement without necessarily having to go and embarrass yourself in front of other people. Like, as you get older, like, you, your body is not as attractive as it used to be. I mean, you know, my body's just not, 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 uh, not as, not as, not as nicely formed as it used to be. And so maybe there's some people that just like to get out and do it on their, on their own and want to set a goal of doing a 5k or a 10k or something like that. And this is a way of kind of marking that, uh, achieving that goal. I do see the attraction of it from an, an older person type of perspective. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting though, because essentially, like on a, on a slightly, I guess, serious take on all this, what you're saying seems to suggest to me that virtual races are a solution to an inc- to an inclusivity problem, right? Is that some people may not feel comfortable showing up and running an in-person event. Yeah. Absolutely. Running is intimidating if you are not, if you do not consider yourself a runner. And so it, it's a way for you to kind of participate without being there and, you know, having crowds of people around you. Yeah, it's a big problem. It's something that has been showing partly in this other trend uh, that we see, which which the report also highlighted, which is that although, for instance, shoe sales are up, meaning that more runners are going out there uh, running, it's been a struggle for the industry to convert some of those runners into regular racers or even just you know like just to con- to put them through the funnel of just getting them into a race getting them to experience the event and then you know hopefully making them into more of a kind of like habit racer do you guys see any kind of way of improving that because again it, it comes back to inclusivity right it's all those beginners and non-racers how do we get them to feel more comfortable and get get them to feel that they belong in races and that they can show up for an event and don't have to like, you know, run remotely somewhere. Well, I think that there's a number of races that are out there that have been doing it for a number of years. And so you take somebody like myself that has been helping to organize the Scott Coffee Run for a number of years. 
um, you know, we kind of have uh, our own set in our ways type of approach and so forth um, that has proven to be successful. And so we continue along that path. Um, I'm not sure if you've had Kathy Dalby from Pacers running on your podcast or not, but um, but they have a, a both a, a set of running stores in the Washington D.C. area as well as they put on events, and they've done a number of really interesting things to reach out to a younger demographic, um, be more inclusive, um, you know, combine you know kind of uh, you know runs that are get together for fun with um, you know having goal races and things like that, and you know, while there's examples where a number of races have been down, their races have done pretty well because of of some of that effort that they put into trying to make that connection between these new runners. The new runners are just not going to come just because you put up a Facebook ad. <laughs> um, and that has kind of been the habit that I feel like a lot of races have gotten into. And so to reach new demographics, you have to try new things. And it's 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 hard. Yeah. I mean, I haven't had um, Kathy on the podcast yet, but uh, Ryan Callahan, who's the marketing director for Pacers Running. Yeah, Ryan's great. Yeah, he was on and we spoke at length. I think it was that episode came out in December or late November. Uh, we spoke at length about um, the success they've had with the DC half everything that went into that, the branding and everything. I guess the angle there specifically was more around attracting younger participants, which they did They did extremely well at. They had like over 40% of their participants be under the age of 30, which is huge compared to the industry average, which is like 18 or something like that. Um, and then also I did a very interesting episode with uh, Brian Mister, who does this around the Crown 10K down in North Carolina. And he was telling me about they do all of these grassroots initiatives. They have a first timers club, which I think is awesome. They do training runs to also, I guess, take the cost out of the equation. They also have a pay what you want kind of program that, you know, like people can contribute to. So, you know, if you sign up, you can pay some money for someone that may not be able to afford it kind of thing. And he was telling me that all of these things, which is the positive in all this, they do end up moving the needle. So I agree with the sentiment that these are fixable problems. The question is, is the majority of race directors embracing these kinds of, you know, small innovations. I mean, it's not rocket science to get more people to take an interest in participating in races. And it seems to me that unfortunately, the majority of races out there, uh, for many reasons, it could be resources, staffing or whatever, but like they're not actually moving fast enough uh, or firmly enough in the right direction to to get that inclusivity question um, addressed. Now, since we're on the inclusivity um, question, some relatively good news in the age participation stats. So 2022 was the first year in a while, uh, probably since 2010, that was the peak, or 2011, where we saw um, the participation in the 18 to 29-year-old group grow from the year before. Not hugely, not you know, like super dramatically, but there was an uptick there, and there was a bit of a downtick, more pronounced downtick, in the 40 to 59 age bracket um, in terms of the makeup of its 
age group in overall participation. Do we think that's a fluke or is that something that race directors, they sort of learn their lessons or, you know, like they're, they're doing stuff that are making races more attractive to younger people? Unfortunately, I think that's a pandemic fluke because I think we saw in 2020, as we were talking about with virtual races, um, they appealed a lot more to older participants. And so I think what that really is, is just an evening back somewhat. And we're still, we're 18 to 29 is still down from 2019. So I think that there is some resurgence and kind of evening out as more in-person events have come back. But I don't, I don't think, and I, I don't think that we have figured out the problem with attracting youth runners yet. That's been the biggest conversation, I think, at most of the roadshows is, is what are we doing to, how do we fix this problem and actually reach some of these younger runners? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the roadshow because my impression is that it's, it's probably not particularly high on race directors' radar, this trend. I know that we, you know, talk about it a lot and, you know, like other kind of like bodies in the industry talk about it a lot, but are race directors coming forward and sort of, you know, being curious about or, or wanting to find solutions to this? Is it something that is concerning people on the ground? Yes, I would say 40% of the people there specifically brought up to me, what do we do about younger runners? So I do think that it's, people are starting to realize it's a problem. They just don't know how to solve it yet. Because one of the things that actually came up in the group when we were discussing this, actually, it, it may have been around the time when we published this episode with Ryan on Gen Z runners and stuff. And one of the questions that someone asked there, uh, which I found reasonable, is what should we expect that percentage of 18 to 29-year-olds to be? Basically, you know, like, what's the steady state? What's the healthy state? Like, you know, what are we aiming towards? Is there a benchmark here? Because we know that that number hit its peak around 2010, 2011, which is probably around the time when, you know, the whole industry hit its peak. But that person was saying, I mean, you know, it's 18% today. Like, what's the issue? Why should we want it? Or, you know, what should we expect it rather to be 20 or 30%? Um, I think because literally it's been falling since we started doing this every year, it's gotten lower and lower. And so that suggests that it's going to be very hard to get that you know, 30, 40 year old runner to come join events if they never did when they were 21, 22, 23. Um, so I don't know what the exact benchmark is. Um, I know I don't have the numbers from 16 in front of me. 18 was around 18% and we're now at like 14%. And so I do think improvement would be good to see just, con- you know, if we can continue to get to kind of pre-pandemic numbers and then hopefully even beyond that, because it was a, it was a cause for a little bit of concern even before the pandemic. And then I think that really saw the numbers tank. Um, mostly because young people are way too cool for virtual events. So it's simply because basically, I guess, it's where the growth is coming from, right? I mean, we wouldn't have a particular issue with a, with the sport getting on average older if it weren't for the fact that, you know, if it continues that way, participation overall is not going to be growing if, if younger people are not coming through. Yeah, it's getting much harder to, to reach a 40-year-old runner who's never come to an event than one who's done like events throughout their life. Interesting. One of the other trends that um, through the pandemic has been sort of like going back and forth quite significantly over a couple of years was when people register. So that's part of your registration stats that are always very interesting because, you know, we we all have our own 
feelings and anecdotal data and lots of people thought during the pandemic that people were holding off and they were they were registering a lot later um, and basically what seems to be happening in 2022 is that the part the percentage of participants that are registering early went up and that of participants registering late was down now to me I would have thought that when there is a big influx of people going back into races, it would be a natural shift to get more people to sign up early. It's just like a usual bullish thing that, you know, like more people want to go in and they sign up early. Is there anything else to read into that stat other than the fact that more people into races generally would mean that registration would shift earlier? that's probably pretty close. Um, so the, the actual like event week registrations have been extremely steady, uh, every year it's like 24 to 26%. And that remained pretty true, but you're right that the like three, one week to four weeks out, um, is where you really saw the drop. And so it seemed like people had either decided early or very late They, they weren't waiting. And some of that could have just been the difference in how people make decisions this year were they were really excited to get back to run. And so they registered right away. Uh, and if they hadn't done that, then it just kind of fell off their radar in a way that, you know, it used to be, they always knew they were going to do that event. You know, Johanna, I just thought of something. It may have been caused um, somewhat by deferrals. Yeah. So like people that signed up for a race for 2020 um, had been on deferral. And so like, the race just kept them on deferral. And then as soon as they opened, they moved those deferrals into the race. So, you know, like a hundred people might have signed up for the race in 2020. They got deferred for a couple of years. And then when the race opened, um, the software basically allows a race director to easily, you know, put those deferrals into, into this year's race. And so it may be somewhat of a statistical, um, misdirection there. Yeah, that would make sense. Since we're on the topic of when people register, another piece of information I found quite interesting, and actually, I don't think it was there in the 2021 report, but I didn't check, was this graph you guys have of the three registration peaks. So basically, you see the distribution of registrations throughout the registration cycle, and you see three three kind of peaks there. You see, obviously, the the people who register very late so like you know like the the month of race and week of race crowd then you see the people that register very early and then you see also a, a bump in the middle and you see actually that bump in the middle obviously move around depending on on the on the distance um, that we're talking about so you know marathons that bump is earlier than let's say 10k's uh, and that bump comes in the 30 to 60 days out territory it feels to me that there's three different types of participants out there, like the the early birds, the really kind of like last minute folks, and like, you know, the bulk of people in the middle who who register regularly around price increases and stuff like that. Do you think that's that's a fair characterization? Do do we feel like we feel we know anything more about what motivates each group of people producing those three peaks in registration? I think you're pretty close. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the middle is probably prices, pricing. The very early birds and the very late people just kind of are who they are and are not motivated by outside things. But I think the timing of that middle group really is just pricing. You also have uh, something there in, in the notes in the report. 
that uh, is something I wasn't actually aware of, where you say, give people the option to sign up now and pick up their distance later kind of thing, right? In order to encourage people to sign up earlier. How does it work? Someone would come onto an event that has, say, a marathon, a half marathon, and a 10K, and they'll just sign up without picking a distance? No, they would pick a distance. Um, but if you have flexible options for transferring events, then you can say, you know, sign up for the marathon now. If like your training doesn't go well, you can always change it to the half marathon later. And that just gives them some flexibility for, for making sure that they can participate at all. Okay, interesting. So basically you're saying if as an event, you don't have any cost, any transfer costs or any barriers like that, you can tell people, listen, give us your money. And then, you know, we're really flexible. You know, if, as you say, mostly, I guess, downgrading from from events, right? You tell them, you know, you find the, the marathon is, you know, you, you bit off a little bit too much. We can, we can put you down to the half marathon kind of thing, right? Yeah. We have this one customer vacation races and they have extraordinarily flexible refund and deferral policies um, that are just very, very consumer friendly. And I, I, I feel like they're like the model that every race should, should, should model themselves after. I think so many races are so determined to keep that $50 uh, because somebody wants a refund because they got injured or something like that. And they wind up not creating a raving fan. Um, for Scott Coffee, if people send an email in saying, hey, I got, I got you know, injured or whatever, um, can I get my $35 back? I refund it because I don't want the bad karma. And, 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 and they always are like, oh, thank you so much. I'll definitely be back next year. I think people, people just don't offer flexible enough options. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think there's, there's a reasonable degree of flexible. And I would consider shifting someone 30 days out between the marathon and the half marathon. I would consider that, you know, being reasonably flexible. And then I guess there is the, two days out, sprained ankle, dog ate my my homework, kind of whatever, right? And I've incurred all the costs. And then I guess as a race director, I'll have to understand people, you know, like thinking a bit harder about that, e- even if it means disappointing someone, right? And vacation races kind of accommodates that sort of thing where they've got a sliding scale for the amount of refund that they give based upon time before, right? So if you cancel, I, I forget the days, but if you cancel 90 days before you get full refund, if you cancel 15 days before you only get 50% refund. Um, yeah, there's costs, but you also have to consider like how many people are actually sending you an email asking for a refund. In the case of the little Scott coffee race here with a thousand people, I'll get like two a year. And does it really matter that we're out the 60 bucks that I refunded? And oh, by the way, we've got a couple of raising, raving fans now, and we don't have somebody that's like sulking and ticked off and saying mean things about us. Yeah, I think the important thing with all of these things is more around being clear and transparent rather than the policy itself. Because, you know, what you're describing there with uh, vacation races makes a lot of sense to even put into paper and have as a policy. You know, I, I think people would appreciate being told that, you know, if you cancel 90 days out, you get full refund. If you get canceled, you know, like a week out, you get less of a refund. Yeah, this is kind of a personal topic, but at Run Sign Up, our contract is non-exclusive. So a customer can leave us at any point in time, no penalty involved. 
A number of other uh, vendors, you know, insist upon a contract, you know, multi-year contract and stuff like that. And you look at our churn numbers and they're, they're, they're like very, very close to zero. And having the ability for customers to leave us if they're unhappy with us, well, they should have that right, you know, and like, what right do we have of taking money from them? Yeah, I get the fact that, yeah, you've paid for porta potties and you've allocated the percentage of the porta potty across each individual, or you might have bought one too many t shirts or medals. But I just don't, I, I, I think people are, are watching their pennies and the dollars are flying over their heads. No, I agree. You need, you need to be reasonable with that. And I think different events are at different ends of it. I know lots of like really grueling, you know, like ultra marathons that have, you know, like 50 participants and those, and those guys, you know, like they get injured proper. I mean, you know, they get lots of people would like to have canceled because through training, all kinds of stuff happens. And then the tickets are big. Like I, Anyway, I, I think I think we, we labored this enough. I completely agree that you want to have people happy and you definitely don't want to be creating barriers because they never work uh, when people want to leave, whether it's your race or your... Um, I see this quite a lot with race directors now on a more relevant point with mailing lists. I mean, why would you... You know, they, they go and hide the unsubscribe thing and like, you know, they make it the same text as the background and stuff like that. I'm like, listen, why would you want to be sending emails to someone that doesn't want to be part of the mailing list, right? I mean, what what's the, what, are, what do you hope to achieve there? I mean, just let them go. P- put the unsubscribe as prominently as you can there. Anyway, let's move to pricing trends, which is one of my favorite areas and very interesting seeing what we've been through with inflation and cost increases. There was a steep increase in uh, entry fee prices from 2021. Uh, marathons are up 16%, half marathons almost 12%. 10Ks, uh, more than 10%. Do we have any evidence to suggest how participation and demand responded to those price increases? Because we had a, a, a bit of a chat last year with you, Bob, and Chris Robb, uh, and you, Johanna, I think, on a different podcast about you know people's reluctance to put prices up. There were concerned that people are not going to be signing up. Did it put a dent? Did it even make any kind of difference? I mean, I think it's kind of hard to tell because there were so many factors going on. My personal opinion would be no. Um, Just based off of, I don't think that, like Bob said earlier, I don't think that was what caused um, participation to still be a little bit low this year, especially because people saw prices go up across the board on everything. And so this, you know, I think people kind of knew this was coming. Yeah. And I, I, I feel that there is some price elasticity on 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 race pricing, and and certainly on processing fees. Like our customers can increase the processing fee and and keep the difference, and and we've seen you know a number of customers starting to do that. Um, but I I don't think it's a bad thing to charge more as long as you put the energy into it and make what you're offering valuable. <laughs> Well, and in terms of the environment we've been through, I mean, forget about being a bad thing. It was a necessary thing, wasn't it? Because just margins were, were that were thin uh, even even before what's been happening with inflation. They've been under heavy pressure with what's been happening with the costs, with all of the supply chain issues, right? So people had to do that to survive in many cases. Yeah, and I I guess the other point I'll I'll uh, I'll take this opportunity to make here is that. 
I think there's a difference between a no frills type of race and, you know, like a high frills type of race. And I think most races are organized around high frills. And, um, and I would advocate uh, as a way of getting people back and involved and so forth to go more towards the no frills type of type of side of things, um, i.e. no medals, no shirts, no timing, you know, like real cheap. So like we do our Morristown Turkey Trot that way and we it's $10 and we are very profitable with it being a $10 fee. Uh, because we don't have any costs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And actually, we um, I recorded an episode on um, race budgets that is um, still to go out with Sean Ryan. He was telling me that an important thing to understand in circumstances where margins are under pressure is to be really aware of the things that participants are aware around the race and not and try not to cut those the things that will actually affect the race experience and try to basically focus on things that are sort of not that visible to people and may not affect the race experience so you know like what you do with your office or or other stuff right and you want to try and be more aggressive with that side of costs rather than then starting to go down the spiral of, you know, like, oh, I'll do a cheaper medal and a cheaper this and a cheaper that. Because as you say, it's there's two types of races out there, and it's good to know what type of race your race is. And if your race is a kind of like premium high frills race, you should not try to go down, you know, like the making it a budget thing just to, you know, improve your economics because it, it alters the character of the race, and that's not really the right way to, to go about it. Exactly. Price increases over the registration cycle seem to be coming down on average. So basically, people use fewer price increases. Do we have an idea why that is? Um, I think that's left over from the pandemic during kind of the uncertainty of races and whether they were happening. Uh, a lot of virtual races didn't have price increases and people just didn't kind of removed out of their regular schedule. This is when we open registration. This is when our price increases, et cetera. Um, so I, I think that will kind of normalize back over the next couple of years. Okay. Now, I want to wrap up with um, a quick look at promotions, the stats that came out of the report around promotions. There were some stats there around people using coupons, which is a feature that you guys offer on the platform which is essentially discount codes, basically. Do we know how people use those? Are they mostly in a kind of like, you know, time-limited thing? You know, basically it's like, I don't know, like Valentine's Day or whatever, like Christmas or whatever, and they just put out a discount code targeting that specific holiday? Or do they have discount codes that, let's say, offer 10% and they use them throughout the year, throughout the registration cycle? I don't think we know which one they're doing, but they should definitely be doing them time limited because they don't they don't work as a good motivator unless you say it has to be done on this date. Okay, fair enough. Now, the other thing that seems to work particularly work on the platform and simple and and people take a, a advantage of is your referral rewards feature. Do you want to like briefly explain to people how that works? So, referral rewards is a great feature on our platform. What happens is a race director sets up a set of parameters, and a typical one would be if you refer five friends, you get $20 back or even your full race fee back. Um, and what happens is that a special code gets created for sharing. So that runner that just signed up is now sharing with their friends. Our platform keeps track of how many of their friends sign up. As soon as it hits five, 
we issue the refund automatically. So the race director doesn't have to do any work. What we see is ROIs of 1,000, 2,000, 3,000%. Um, race directors that really do a good job of this and will set a drip campaign using our free email um, you know, uh, tool will set up emails to remind people to invite their friends and, and the rewards that come along with that. Um, and then we've got this kind of second layer that people can utilize uh, to track swag rewards. So if people get 10 people, maybe they get a free hat or something like that or a hoodie when they hit 20. So you find out that races will typically have a few mavens that may attract quite a few people and are motivated by the swag. They're motivated by the money. But what you also find out is that a lot of people only will get two or three friends and you won't have to issue the refunds. It's just an amazing tool that I forget what the average is. It's like six or 7% by just turning it on. And the, and the races that use it aggressively, they'll hit like 20% plus of their participants come through a referral, which kind of makes a lot of sense. So is it just toggling something and it would just work out of the box? You just toggle it on and our default is five friends, 20 bucks. And all you have to do is toggle. If you don't like that, you can set it to be $30. Um, our suggestion is not make it too small, make it meaningful amount. And the, the numbers tell the truth. Like the ROI is just tremendous. For every dollar you spend, you get like, 80 or $100 back in return uh, of other people um, signing up. It's, it, it, the numbers are incredible. People don't believe it. <laughs> when people sign up on, when they put their race on run sign up, is it, are you guys sort of like pushing that to, to help people realize how valuable it is and turn it on? You know, we, we did. We usually used to have it in the wizard. We took it out during, um, during the pandemic and now we're going to be doing a refresh on the wizard in the next few months and we're going to be putting it back in. But, um, but yeah, it's easy to find if you just type referral in the little menu search, you'll, you'll see it. And it's really super easy to turn on. Well, absolutely. Because if it, if it gives you like a six, 7% boost just by uh, toggling something, I'd be, I'd be toggling all day. We've talked uh, in length about the stats in the report. This is just a brief highlight of some of the things that I found uh, the most interesting in the report. Where can people download the um, latest copy of that, which we should say, if it's not obvious, like most things on Run Sign Up, is absolutely free. So where can people get a copy of this? It's at runsignup.com slash trends, or as noted on the new website, if you just go to Knowledge Base, there's an industry reports section that has this and you know all the reporting we do throughout the year on, on numbers. Awesome. Uh, hard copies on offer? At the roadshows, uh, we do have some hard copies at the roadshows. Come see us on the road. Okay, great. Last question. What is this info subdomain you guys added? Because I, I go to that and it seems to me like it's still the run signup website. Is that is that a placeholder for something? Is it supposed to evolve into something? So runsignup.com is our system. So it, it, it it's the, you know, several million lines of code and 2000 plus database tables and stuff like that. And it has to be PCI compliant. So if Johanna wanted to make a change on the website, it actually has to go through our code review process, which adds, even if she wants to add a comma, it adds like, uh, you know, probably three hours of developer time to get that comma added. 
And so what we did is we created a separate WordPress website, info.runsignup.com. And that allows our marketing team to have full control over all of the content on that. And then what we did is we basically created a, um, you know, the mirrored the page on runsignup.com. So when you click a menu item that's content oriented or knowledge base oriented or something like that, you go to info dot. The other thing to note is that our old blog uh, is not getting new blogs, runsignup.blog. So all new blogs are being done on info.runsignup. And um, and we've taken all the relevant blogs off of the old blog and put them on the info.runsignup. But because there's so much SEO search on the old one, we just left that there and, and static. Okay, a really complete um, answer there. Where can people reach you if they want to have a chat about any of the stuff today or any run sign up related stuff? You can always email me. It's johanna at runsignup.com. It's uh, also on the actual report. My email is listed. So you can always you can always reach me from that. And I'm bob.bickle at runsignup.com. And you can feel free to contact me. Awesome. Guys, thank you uh, very much for today for uh, the time that you took to uh, come and share this with us and explain some of the stats in the report. Thank you very much for the report itself and everything you guys do putting out data for the industry. Uh, We all really appreciate it. Hopefully, lots of our listeners are going to be shaking hands with you in one of your upcoming roadshows. And thanks again for everything you do. Thank you. Thanks, Panos. And thanks to everyone listening in. And we'll see you all on our next podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode on Race Trends with my guests, Run Signups, Johanna Good, and Bob Bickle. You can find more resources on anything and everything related to race directing on our website, racedirectorshq.com. You can also share your questions about the numbers in today's podcast, registration trends, or anything else in our Facebook group, Race Directors Hub. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe or leave a review on your favorite player. And also check out the podcast back catalog for more great content like this. Until our next episode, take care and keep putting on amazing races.